So as we turn to our passage in the scripture, let us look to the Lord in prayer as we prepare ourselves to hear his word. Heavenly Father, again as we come before you, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and hearts to understand. Lord, this is the word of life. And it's to you that we run to hear these words that give us life and give us understanding. Lord, that we might know you deeper and fuller. But Lord, also to teach us how we are to live in this, your world. To go and to build your kingdom. To be your disciples. To be people who bombard even the gates of hell themselves. Because we know your word is sure. And Jesus Christ is alive and well. So Lord, do change us to look more like our Savior today than when we came in this morning. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As you begin to look at this passage, I want you to see that there's a celebration that's going on. And we are people who love um, underdog stories, miracle stories, because we make movies about them. There is the Texas Western team that was the first all-African-American basketball team that won the championship. And so they broke a lot of things. And there was a story about it that we made into the movie. The Jamaican bobsled team. We remember that. James Braddock, better known as Cinderella Man. Michael Orr, the blind side. Or the 1980 U.S. hockey team that beat Russia and Finland to take the gold medal and turned into a movie by Disney called Miracles. Now we love the underdogs because we like to root for them. And as we root for them, again, our thing is to make a movie out of it. Back then they began to give songs about their victory. And so here we find ourselves right after David and Goliath have had, have come and there's a great victory. Now we want to understand that this was obviously an unlikely victory. David was a small kid, a shepherd boy who comes out against this huge man and he defeats him and he defeats him in his way, God's way. And as this defeat happens, then what happens is David now comes from this unlikely person to now this glorious hero. And people are starting to notice. So much so that there starts to be what we call a victory song. And this victory song, one, it tells of the state of times because really what should be happening if you were to hear and turn back to Exodus 15, you get what we call Miriam's song. You have Moses' song and then Miriam's song. Just after God takes them through uh, the Red Sea. And so how do they respond? They don't respond by talking about how great Moses is. Miriam goes out with all the women, with all the tambourines, and they go out and they begin to dance. And they say this, sing to the Lord, for he is the one who is provided. He is the one who is taking care of us. So we find ourselves in the midst of a time where this victory song is not about God. It's a victory song about men. And so what they do is they put in David and they put in Saul's names. And so again, there shouldn't even have been a problem because what they should have done is given praise to God. But we're not in a place like that. So we find ourselves in the midst of where there's a song for the victory. And the song for the victory, I want you to understand, is Hebrew poetry. And so it's done in couplets. And so what happens is this is really not to be an offending song to Saul. It's a song where it just makes sense. Saul, 10,000, he's the one who should be talked about first. David, 10,000. It's just how Hebrew poetry goes. So it wasn't anything intended um, to be offensive, but that's not how Saul hears it. 
What Saul hears is he hears that David is given the ten thousand and he finds himself only given the thousands. So I want you to understand, first of all, that David was faithful. David has done nothing except what he's supposed to do. And David, listen, probably was better off tending sheep for his father than he is in the king's court. He was better off doing the the many many little things with the sheep, tending the sheep, picking up droppings, feeding them, taking them to the river than he was in the court of the king. Be very careful for what you choose and what you want. And so he finds himself in a place where he's been faithful. Listen, David was working for his God, for his king and his country. And he was successful. Now this was something that ticked Saul off some. Because here's the reality. Saul wanted to stay number one. Remember, we understand Saul's had some epic fails. Remember? So uh, was told not to do the sacrifice, but he got tired of waiting. And so in his own time, in his own uh, way, he says, well, I'm going to do this on my own behalf. And so Samuel comes in and goes, what are you doing? I told you to wait. Well, I was getting a little, you know, a little impatient. So I wanted to help God out. Then there's the epic fail with Agog, the king. He says, go out and destroy everything. Don't leave anything. And he says, well, you know what? What happened is we went and we, we killed the people, but we kept the best of the best. But we kept the best of the best for God. And oh yeah, you know what? I really did sin. I didn't do anything that God told me to do. But here, hey, Samuel, please still go out with me and let me look really good in front of all the people. See, Saul was about his kingdom, not God's kingdom. And definitely not God's word, not God's commandments. God told him very specifically, do this. And Saul said, I don't really want to do it. So he finds himself in a place where, again, remember Samuel says, the kingdom has been removed for you. Now I want you to understand, this is just like where we watch movies. We get to understand some things that the characters don't. We know that David has been anointed. We know that David's going to be the new king. Saul does not know that. Saul knows his kingdom's going to be removed, but he doesn't know when and he doesn't know how. So all of a sudden, he starts to find himself looking at this boy, David, who is just a boy. And listen, Saul's not ready to give up his kingdom. And remember what Saul says in the passage that we read? When he said he was very just angry and pleased, he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, to me they've ascribed thousands. Listen, what more can he have but the kingdom? So it's very insightful on Saul's part. He's starting to figure out, hey, this kid is starting to become someone who's well known. And so much so, God is with him and he's removed him from me. So what happens is Saul becomes suspicious of David. And it says even the mere sight of David, listen, drives Saul to rage. And so what he has is he has resentment and frustration. And it usually, if you think about that, when you're resentful or frustrated with other people, listen, the reality is most of the time we have a problem not with that person, but with God. Why did you allow him to be blessed, God, and not me? Why do you allow him to be successful and not me? God, why does that family get to go through this and not me? Why do they get to go on this vacation and not me? Why do they go through this thing and not me? 
So we get caught up in resentment and frustrations, most of the time not with others, but with God himself. And so when we become frustrated with God, then what happens is it begins to affect how we, how we go about life. And so what King Saul does here is he finds himself in a position of envy. Now there's a verse here that talks about a harmful spirit that God allows and sends upon Saul. Now you should hear that and kind of go, what? What the heck is that? And I can tell you this, very few commentators dealt with this part of the passage. Because it's a hard thing. Because God's supposed to be a loving, giving God, right? So why would God allow a harmful spirit to come upon Saul? Now, we're going to take something that could probably be a a sermon in and of itself or a couple of sermons. But I'm very quickly going to walk through some things here. Okay? One is that God gave a harmful spirit. Now, I want you to understand two things. One, there's a difference between possession of a spirit and oppression of a spirit. Possession is where, again, we've seen like the demoniac in the scripture where it affects your language, it affects your actions. You are overtaken. You are possessed by an evil spirit. If you are a Christian, you cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. Cannot. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit indwelt in you. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. There cannot be two types of spirits indwelling the same person. Now I want you to understand though that there is an opportunity for oppression. And oppression is where there's an influence where God allows the spirits to come to try to influence us to sin. Which again for Saul is not a big step. He already wants, he's already envious, he's already wanting to kill David. So to have a harmful spirit that comes to him and influences him is not a big deal. It's not a big push. But I want you to understand that we are told, listen, we can have spirits even today that come and bombard us. But we are told that we can resist them. It's why we're to keep in step with the spirit. It's why it says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. You have to have it all. You don't get to go, well, I've got a couple of these figured out, but not everything. If you're angry, then you're not keeping in step with the Spirit. If you're envious, you're not keeping in step with the Spirit. If you're not self-controlled, you're not keeping in step with the Spirit. And so there's this reality that, again, what's going on is there's an oppression going upon Saul, not a possession at this point. Now, I don't believe that Saul is a Christian because the Holy Spirit is removed by him. But we're not going to... Stay there right now. I want you to look now. What happens is then God gives us up. Now, if you looked at Judges as you came to 1 Samuel, okay, Judges 17, 6, what does it say? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, that's just not for the people back then. We go to Romans 1, chapter 20, uh, verse 24, and it says, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. Why? Because we trade the truth of God for a lie. So I want you to say when God gives us up to the desires of our heart, that's not a good thing. When we are in control, that is not a good thing. We want God to protect us. Remember what God does in regards to Job? Satan had to ask permission. Hey, let me go and take care of your servant Job. 
And God allows Satan to come and do the things to Job. He couldn't do it in and of himself. God had to allow him permission. But God was the one who protected Job. Remember what Jesus does for Peter in Luke chapter 22. He says, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. But I'm praying for you, Peter. It's what God does for us now. He prays for us and wants us. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But more than that, he is the one who was raised. And he's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So then who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he does for you. If you get nothing else from today's service, if you are a Christian, you have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit that are praying for you. That you might not fall or fail or find yourselves in a position where you remove yourself or give your heart away to anything but to Jesus. He's saying, I know Satan wants to sift you. You think life's hard? What if God was not protecting you? What if he removed his favor from you? You think life's bad and hard now? God loves you and he protects you. And he says, I'm praying for you. Be encouraged. But if you're not a Christian, then what happens? You begin to plot. Saul begins a murderous plot. And I say he doesn't just want to kill David. It is premeditated. There is forethought in planning. He says, I can throw the spear. He's in the throne room. Why does he need a spear? And it makes a distinction. David has the loot to take care and to to give Saul solace. Saul has a weapon of war in the throne room. And it's this understanding that Saul knew what he was doing because he doesn't throw the spear just one time. He throws it at least twice, we know of, because David got out of the way. Now, how does that apply to us today? James chapter 3, verse 13 through the end of the chapter. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But this is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you are someone or you're around someone who causes trouble all the time, get away from them. Get away from them. If we are people who love and encourage and build one another up, that's the fruits of righteousness. That's what we are to be in today. So 
Saul's here, he's premeditated, and I think David doesn't really understand. I don't think David thinks that Saul's trying to kill him. Why? Because I think here's the reality, and we say it all the time. Saul's just having a bad day. He's just in one of those moods. So be careful. Be, you know, just be aware of the situation around you. And so I, I don't think David is sitting there thinking, man, I've got to be on my guard the whole day because Saul's trying to pierce me. I think he's thinking, Saul's had a bad day. He threw a spear at me. Oh, King Saul's having a really bad day. But then he throws it twice. And yet all David wants to do is to love him and to minister to him. And the reality is that ticks Saul off more. Why? Because he knows the Lord is with David. And he's not with me. You ever been yelled at for being nice? For doing things for Jesus? Have you ever been yelled at? It happens. But rather it be that than for you to be the one upset because someone is doing something for Christ. So Saul has become envious. He's become murderous. But then he takes it a step further. And I want you to understand that this goes all the way through the end of the chapter. Now, we're, we didn't read all the way through the end, but I'm going to show you how it progresses. Because what happens, um, David has a love for the Savior. Saul is reacting to that love. So what he does is he starts to develop hateful schemes. So see if this is a progression that you've ever been a part of. So the first thing he wants to do is he wants to get rid of David. Have you ever wanted to get rid of other people? So what does Saul do? Saul puts him, he says, you know what? You're going to get out of the king's court and I'm going to put you in charge of my army. You're going to be in charge of a a, a, a whole cohort of at least a thousand people. Now I think he's doing this for a couple of reasons. Because one of the things that's happening is David's becoming popular. All the people are starting to know who David is. If you become of someone who is out there and you're in battle, you're unsuccessful or whatever, you become forgotten very quickly. So I think Saul's thinking, if I can just get him out of the way, out of the public limelight, maybe people will start to forget who David is. The second thing I think that's going on is I think he's saying, no longer am I going to be the one directly connected to murdering David. I hope he gets killed by the Philistines. I'm going to put him in a battle group where he has probably a greater chance of being killed and he can die a hero that person he can handle but what happens is he's successful and becomes more popular see the reality is when when people tell me that they're going to go to a new place or they're going to go and do that because they don't like something here or something there my response to them is you know what you always take your problems with you it doesn't matter about everybody else you still got your own issues you've got your own heart to deal with so if you think it's greener somewhere else By all means, go. But I'm telling you, if you're bitter here, you're going to be bitter there. If you're happy here in the midst of everything, then you're going to be happy wherever you go. You are your own worst enemy. So Saul's trying to physically get rid of David, but then he progresses because what he does, and this is part of the passage that we didn't read about, but he takes his oldest daughter, who again we heard about, was probably going to be promised to the one who killed Goliath. Right? So he didn't give a specific thing. He didn't hear that from Saul. He just heard it from the people. You're going to get um, married into the royal family. You're going to become rich. All these things are going to happen. So the older daughter now becomes available. And so King Saul offers the daughter to David. But David responds and says, who am I? I'm a poor shepherd boy. 
I'm unworthy to be a part of the thing. And you know what then King Saul does? He insults him. And he takes the oldest daughter and he gives the oldest daughter to somewhere else. The thing that should have been given to David for his victory is now removed from him. And David's okay with that. But it's another way for Saul to go, ah, I'm snubbing you. I'm getting at you. But then a third thing happens. One of his daughters, and this really ticks him off, falls in love with David. And how does Saul think about his daughter? I love my daughter, and I want to protect my daughter, and I want to do everything in my power to have my daughter have everything she wants in life. No, it says, hey, this makes me happy because she can be a snare to him. He uses his own flesh and blood. Hey, you love David? Hey, great, I can use that against him. By all means, go and marry him. And what does David say? It's not an easy thing to become a son of the king. But all the people then begin to, to fill uh, with David with these lies, a sweet taste of lies. You ever had people do that to you? Oh, you're the greatest. <laughs> sweet. Sometimes you start to believe it. Oh, man, I am the greatest. Man, I really do believe I'm eye candy. Oh, I really do believe I'm that good. See, the, the people start telling David these lies. Oh, the king wants you. He wants you to be part of the royal court. He loves you. And you know what? It's not a big deal. All you have to do, now listen to this, is to go out and kill a hundred Philistines and remove and prove that you did it. Now what was the likelihood of David to go out and kill a hundred Philistines and to take away the thing that repulsed him the most about the Jewish people? So not only did he kill them, but he had to insult their whole people group. How does David respond Instead of bringing 100, he brings 200. Now Saul's really ticked off. He's ticked off. Everything David does is successful. And everybody, listen, and we'll get back to Jonathan in the first five verses. That's next week. But his own son, his own daughter, his own people in the court, his own people love David. And that ticks Saul off. Now, there's a big distinction between how Saul is doing and treating the Savior in the battles and what David's doing. Because God said, the Lord is with you, David. And I want this to be the encouragement because no matter where you are or what you do, listen, it's not always easy walking with the Lord, is it? I haven't found to be so. It's hard sometimes. And listen, we're, we're filled with stories throughout Scripture where it says what people intended for evil, God intended for good. People had to go through trials. People had to go through prison. People had to go through hard times. Why? Because God was using it to bring about things within the person as well as the greater kingdom. And he does it with David. David, I am teaching you. I'm having you go through these trials and tribulations because you need to know that I'm the one who gives you. I'm the one who's praying for you, David. It's not Saul that you find your salvation and it's God and God alone. And so as David is learning this, we have to remind ourselves that again, Romans 8, the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. If he is for us, then who's against us? It doesn't matter. We go back to the Goliath thing. You come out here with a shield. and You come out with a spear and a sword. Is that all you're bringing against the living God? Is that all you've got? Oh my God's going to wipe you up, man. Do you believe that? Do you live in such a way that you believe that God is the one who wins? 
Do you believe that God is the one who cares about you and will protect you and keep you? Will it always be easy? No. Will he always keep you from sickness? No. Will he always keep you from troubles? No. Is he always there in the midst of it? Yes. Yes. And always. And he says, do you trust that? And as you trust that, then how will you respond? And David responds by loving the Lord. He gives the Lord everything. That's what true love is. When we give ourselves up for others. I know we live in a day where people just say, hey, just be honest with each other. That has nothing to do with the gospel. The gospel says, die to yourself that others might be encouraged and built up. If you're only living to be honest with your spouse or with your friends, that is going to cause some hard times. It's when you say, I'm going to die to my selfish desires and so that the other one can live. That's what love is. That's what Christ does for us, where he gave his life as a ransom so that we might inherit eternal life through him. What an incredible gift. So how do we respond? By loving God and loving others. And again, we have to get that right. Because if we don't get this right, then what happens is we stop. Again, Steve Brown is very good at this. He says, if I'm one day without being in the word and praying to God, my wife knows it. If I'm two days, then my close friends know it. If I'm three days without being in the Word and praying, then everybody knows it because I've become a jerk. We have to make sure our relationship with Jesus Christ is right. It's why it says in the Bible, preach the gospel to yourself every day. It doesn't say one day a week. It doesn't say a couple times. It says every day. And that's hard. That's hard to die to yourself and live for other people. I know. But he says, do it every day, every day, every day, every day. And I know there's times where we kind of go, well, when's it my day? And Jesus says, when you come home. So continue to love the people around you just the way that I loved you. Do they deserve it? No, but neither do you. That's the point, isn't it? That's the point of Jesus coming and talking to us. And he says, listen, and I want you to understand this. We can never be neutral about Jesus. He either is our Lord or he's not. And if he is our Lord, then he wants the loyalty of our hearts. And he prays for us and intercedes for us. And his desires for us are great. And only that, then listen, we should be asking, what's he going to do with me? Again, he doesn't need us. He wants us. And he wants us to be used by him to go out and to change the world. But make no mistake, you cannot be neutral with him. He either is or he's not your Savior. And if he's not your Savior then he's not praying for you. And he's giving you over to the desires of your own heart. And that's a bad, bad place to be. But those who know Christ, he says, come for your sins are forgiven. And he invites us to his table. His. And we don't deserve to be there except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, What a great, great story. It's a story we know so well about David and Goliath and David and Saul. But yet, Lord, please teach us to see Christ and him alone in the midst of the passages. Lord, what an incredible gift that it is that you pray for your children. You pray for us to stand strong, to show mercy and grace, to live out the gospel daily and to give it away. But Lord, let those in this room who don't know you Lord, may they be challenged to lay down their own selfish desires, to lay it at the foot of the cross, to allow Jesus to ransom them from hell itself 
and to give to them new life, a new mind, a new heart, where the desire is to please and honor Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that the gospel is fresh and it's new every day. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we do pray. Amen.